0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Greta Anderson is Western Watershed Project's Deputy Director. She has an MA in Geography from the University of Arizona and a Water Policy Certificate from the same institution. She has a B.A. in Environmental Studies from Prescott College and a Certificate of Clinical Herbalism from the Southwest School of Botanical Medicine. Today I spoke with Greta about grazing in the West, thinking like a watershed, as well as old-growth grasslands which were set upon in the 1800s by early ranchers who had no idea the destructive practices they were setting in motion that continues to this day under the misnomer of custom and culture.
1: Western Watershed's project has changed. Uh named in part for the John Wesley Powell concept of how the West could have been managed according to watershed basins. So looking at the places where, um, you know, the drainages, the major tributaries um, and major rivers and managing according, according to the ecosystem, the functional ecosystem within that watershed. So the management of water quality and quantity, Is wholly dependent upon the landscape that is draining into it. And Western Watersheds Project really took that model to heart and thought, you know, these, we have to manage outside of the arbitrary boundaries, whether that's a grazing allotment or the boundary of public land or even national boundaries like we have to think about the continuity of ecosystems that don't stop at borders or fences or you know forest boundaries and so managing and and that's how um you know plants and animals look at the landscape or occupy the landscape they occupy it according to where the resources exist not who's managing it or uh you know what the what the governing policies are it's like is there grass there is there a spring there and so starting to think about how to best protect the landscape um at at the model at an ecological unit a big ecological unit level and of course you know watersheds can be defined at a variety of scales but um i tend to look at watersheds within, uh, you know, sort of a functional, at a functional ecosystem level. Um, and so managing, looking at the impacts within the watershed, the airshed, the view shed is really how I, I believe you best protect the sort of natural elements and, and wildlife habitat of that area
0: yeah i think it's really interesting whenever i see maps of of the united states canada mexico um but they're but they're made around watersheds it's like a watershed map even even on a you know a regional level like the pacific northwest or something like that it's really fascinating i always picture people like you just l- looking at a map that everybody else looks at and only seeing like the watershed part of it like how does this whole thing work have you ever been involved with or le- or heard about projects where um, boundaries were kind of overcome in a watershed protection project, maybe between the U.S. and Canada, um, in terms of how they manage the land and basing it on watershed region rather than, uh, you know, we do stuff on our side of the border this way and, and you guys are just going to have to deal with that? It, has there been any coming together of that or within states?
1: Well, under the NEPA process, one of the current requirements is that people look at the cumulative impacts and the past, present, and reasonably foreseeable future impacts in the project area. And so, considering if, if you are taking a hard look under that parameter, you would be accounting for everything else happening in the watershed. And so, a lot of the federal projects should be looking at all the impacts in the watershed that are contributing to or that a project is contributing to. Um, And I think that we're doing a better job at trans border management within land tenure jurisdictions, but down here on the southwest border, I don't think we're doing a a great job at managing across the landscape and across the watersheds. Um, and, and now I think that that vision is more fragmented than ever with uh, um, you know border wall and arbitrary lines, division lines going up right through the heart of ecosystems from Texas to California. Uh, I don't know that we're having great success at watershed management in the Southwest at the moment.
0: I wouldn't, I would never characterize um, watershed management in the Southwest as going well. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody saying that (laughs) in my lifetime, never been the case at least.
1: (laughs) That was Powell's point, is that if we organize communities and statehoods around watersheds, that everybody would be affected by the decisions in that watershed. And so there, there wouldn't be sort of like, you know, the fights over who gets what um, and trucking water out of state to California and Arizona's mad that Colorado took too much. Um, you know, it would be that the cooperation would have to happen at the ecosystem level instead of these sort of battling entities for the same resource. That was, that was Powell's concept. You know, is he thought that that would be a better model for dividing up and managing the West
0: but it goes right up against the model that we have um, that is dominating the landscape. And like NEPA regulations, things like that, Endangered Species Act, it's all good on paper until the government declares something such a, an emergency situation in air quotes that you just rip up that paper and it means nothing. And so I can't imagine what it's like for you guys on the ground um, in the Southwest, looking at that, watching that happen so closely Uh, I see um, people putting images up on Twitter about the border wall and and what's going on there. And um, we were already dealing with grazing. We were, I mean, and we we have been for so long, we were already dealing with pretty heavy stuff and I don't think you probably had this on your list of things to have to worry about uh, until it started.
1: Well, in the desert Southwest, you know, we've been keenly aware of the border lands um, issues for forever because of because of the ecosystem continuity and um yeah i mean i think that the threats and the actual infrastructure um the extent to which the infrastructure is now impermeable is more problematic than ever but this is not really new on the landscape there were there has been um a fragmenting happening and it's it's because of the economic disparity, right? There's a there's a side that has a lot, and the side that doesn't have as much. And all human and animal human are human within the animal communities are going to move to where the resources are. It's just it's kind of frivolous to try to stop that very basic biological drive to you know feed your family, raise offspring. Um, successfully thrive in the world, and and so this sort of cut it cut it off with the wall mentality is just never going to work. But the uh, the those kind of artificial barriers will always be overcome eventually.
0: You had mentioned um, before the show that you had some information on the new regs as they pertain to public lands grazing. You mentioned the BLM and NEPA.
1: There's actually two processes underway right now. And one is the Council on Environmental Qualities revision to the NEPA regulations, the regulations implementing the National Environmental Policy Act. And simultaneously, the Bureau of Land Management has uh, put forth a proposal to revise the regulations governing grazing on the 155 million acres of lands that they manage grazing on public lands that they manage grazing on. So there's two processes and probably more (laughs) that I'm not talking about, but the, that the administration, current administration is really trying to push through to sort of do a last ditch gutting of environmental regulatory policy that has been in place for decades and with the grazing regulations they were last updated under president clinton when secretary bruce babbitt was the secretary of the interior and those grazing regulations um, emphasized the need to look at land health to do nepa environmental analyses on grazing permit renewals And to consider the whole range of impacts to, you know, archaeology, cultural resources, plants, animals, soils, air quality, all of those things when they were renewing these grazing permits, but in some cases had never had a hard look or had a site-specific look taken at what does it really mean to have cows here And um, and so the 1994 regulations were really explicit in implementing these standards of rangeland health that have to be met. Well, in the 2000s under the Bush administration, those folks tried to undo... Babbitt's reforms, with a proposed set of BLM grazing regulations, and Western Watersheds Project, and and some of our allies were able to stop that revision in court in 2006. And those regulations have been the sort of Bush-era cut out. The public don't worry about rangeland health. Those those regulations have been and joined and and not in play ever since. So as of right now, we're still back under the Bruce Babbitt 1994 grazing regulations. Of course, the public lands ranching industry would rather not have the public weighing in on on their grazing management and they would rather not have to meet rangeland health standards because that inhibits their ability from making a maximum profit. And so this administration is going back after the grazing regulations and is proposing revising them again this year. And right now that process is in
0: public scoping. And what does that mean for us? What should we be concerned with, uh, listeners of the show? What should we be doing, if anything, um, that we can be doing right now to participate in this?
1: People should be getting involved because this is the most widespread land use in the West. There's grazing everywhere. There's mines some places. There's logging some places. There's grazing everywhere um, from the low deserts to the Alpine where they bring in sheep, although that's mostly on forest service. But nonetheless, livestock grazing impacts are very broad across the West. So the opportunity is to show the government that you care how they manage these lands that you want to be able to be involved in those decisions through public participation processes, and that you think that the rangeland health standards should actually be upheld, monitoring should be done more often, and that these lands should be better protected and not less. So the BLM has the, the scoping period is open until March 6th, There are a lot of us who have asked for an extension of that deadline um, because we think it's just not enough time for such a huge project. More information about how to comment is on our website, westernwatersheds.org or on the eplanning.blm.gov website. Those are places where you can get more information about what they propose to do. Uh, I think those of us who have been watching the management of grazing devolve in recent years recognize that when they say things like, we need to streamline um, decision making, we need to streamline the permit renewal process, what that really means is they don't want the public getting involved raising issues that hold them back from doing what they want um whether what they want is to graze the you know same number of livestock or whether what they want is to put in new wells uh or you know new fence lines the problem with that is so much of blm land is actually you know habitat for rare and imperiled species and if we the public and you know, watchdog organizations like mine and yours don't weigh in and don't participate. Then that habitat is is basically being ceded to the economic desires of the grazing permittee. And we think it's really important for the public to understand um, that these these are public you know these are public lands and livestock grazing is only one of the things. That they're used for. And in 2020, when we know that livestock grazing has a significant impact on soils and water, um, and and we're dealing with a climate crisis where species are going extinct, uh, this is also, livestock grazing is a huge opportunity. If we improve livestock grazing management towards actually ecologically healthy landscapes, we have a huge opportunity to restore the landscape. Um, passively, right? The the landscape starts to come back and, and improve just by removing the cows. We don't need to go out and seed it. We don't need to you know, cut things down. We just, just take the cows off and things get better. And so it's the sort of low impact way to improve a lot of land. And, and to the extent that the BLM right now is trying to cut the public out of the process, they're also trying to cut out the opportunity for advocacy around that restoration
0: you're listening to the rewilding earth podcast did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars poets artists and organizers from around the world you can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant fresh insights on everything rewilding You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. When I first visited the Southwest and I saw cows, it was a shock because I was from the Midwest and we have grass and visibly you can see, you know, big fat, healthy cows all your life. And then you go see these cows with cholla sticking out of their lips, and you can see their ribs and everything else. And I was just struck by people's tenacity to, to me, apparently, hold up this Marlboro Man, Rancher John Wayne kind of mythology, because clearly nobody was making any money. Cause I looked at the landscape and I looked at the cows and their, you know, their need to eat (laughs) and I just couldn't reconcile how anybody could ever make money. And it's not something we actually talk about on this show until today. I've never really asked anybody. You mentioned money before these guys really make money like grazing on these really marginal marginal for they're they're excellent for wildlife. They're very, very marginal after they've been degraded for just one season of grazing, I never pictured these guys when when I was younger making any money. I thought they were just hobbyists.
1: Well, I think they make money to the extent that their expenses are largely offset through subsidies. We have a really low... Public lands grazing fee. It's a dollar thirty-five a month to raise your cow and calf on pub, and her calf on public lands, and then you know there's subsidies for drought payments and disaster payments, and if your animal, if your livestock get eaten by predators, they pay you for that too. And you know there's a lot of offsets to the public land livestock grazing industry that other small businesses don't get for their for their losses or, you know, for their gains like infrastructure. Um, the other thing I think that's important to recognize is what public lands livestock grazers get is political influence. A lot of how the West was developed um, by Western um, Easterners was to claim the landscape using livestock as a, Way of holding territories, and then that the displacement of indigenous people from those landscapes was backed up by the U.S. military. So it's been a long time. the The history of the West of white people in the West has largely depended upon the influence of the livestock industry on and laying its claim to the landscape, and those same livestock ranchers, you know, they're fifth generation on the same ranch. When they go speak to their congressperson or senator, they have an undue influence. It's a power trip that has been going on, you know, for 150 years in the West. And so whether or not they're making money, they are having an influence over the political landscape that's far outsizes their you know, contribution to our communities or, you know, even beef production, things like that. So there's a, it is really a marginal business model. Most ranchers these days are not relying on the money from the ranch. It's probably a hobby. Um, if somebody in the family has a has a real job or or it's just, you know, a lark that they have an idea that they're going to be the Marro man on horseback and, and make some money. Any way you look at it, it's kind of a scam. It's a scam for the taxpayers. It's a sort of social cultural scam because the sway that these people have um, over Western governments is overlooks the impacts that that tradition has had on native and indigenous communities and still has on native and indigenous communities. Um, it overlooks their contribution toward imperiling species, uh, wiping out predators, destroying waterways. They're not really the heroes that the American myth would, have the, would make them out to be.
0: So not, maybe not exactly like a hobby, but like chess pieces on a board of politics and control and, and, and really an outsized influence to the, you know, degree that these people represent in a, you know, general population (laughs) situation. They're very, very, very small percentage, but with such a voice.
1: You got it. Yeah. I mean, it's, they, they are a minor part of the West but they have a big influence in rural places. And um, that's one of the things that I work to try to do is to really make it, uh, make people understand that public lands are valuable to all of us, whether we go there or not, because of their, contributions to watersheds air quality wildlife habitat border um, connectivity among you know for migration we need these places and we need them not to be trashed <laughs> the problem with blm lands is a very often they're so badly managed that nobody wants to recreate there anyway and so they write people write off blm lands and go to National Park Service or National Forest to hike but you know look around and you see if BLM lands have just as much diversity and potential um, as anywhere and they're mostly desert landscapes so they're really interesting desert ecosystems with cool things happening and you know arid arid adapted plants and animals and I just I wish that more people were invested in seeing these places thrive instead of seeing these as places where they might might be able to make a buck
0: so it stands to reason that there's that if someone's felt their grazing operation was in danger in any way they're not freaking out necessarily about their cattle operation they're freaking out more about the loss of their potential their power to go to D.C. and complain about city slickers asking for government handouts when they probably flew there on a government handout and every single bit of their operation is supported by government handouts. The giant irony of grazing in the West, right? Uh, and and the things that, I think right. it's that loss of power that they would fear the most. If So if I bring that up just so that the other activists listening really know what we're up against. Like they're not just, it was never really about the money. It's about power and influence. And think about that the next time you go to a public hearing, these guys get very, very red in the face. Um, That's what they're fearing to lose.
1: That's right. Yeah, I believe that's true. I think that they fear um, change because they have held on to the West. Um, They've had a sort of, you know, white supremacy worldview that has claimed these lands for 150 years and they don't want to they don't want to share they want to be in control of them they want to maintain their custom and culture of being the powerful people in the west and it's shifting around them you know the more we understand the more um, diversity you know moving into our western cities the bigger the recreation industry grows. The more people understand about climate change and climate sinks, carbon sinks, and how important these public lands are for for our whole planetary health, the less power that those people have. And I get it. You know, they're scared, but there were people scared here 150 years ago when they were being displaced from their lands too. And I think it's about time we reconcile. Um, what's best for the broader community instead of just what's good for public lands, livestock ranchers.
0: What you're talking about is, is not their land. It's BLM land. It's, it's, it's public land. What is it? What's the cost of of grazing your cattle on uh, private land? What's the difference in price?
1: The going rate varies by state, but I think it's like $12 per AUM and, Arizona and $18 in Montana and, you know, every year it's a little bit different what people can
0: charge, but. Yeah. So that's, that's it. It's a lot more than a
1: dollar 35.
0: Yeah. If they have to pay those rates, it's over. It's the whole thing's over. It's a bad business. It's a weak model to begin with when you, when they have to pay fair market value and stop, you know, trashing public lands, then the whole thing implodes. It should. I mean, it's just really strange to have a water, Uh, based animal in a very dry place in the first place. It's weird to see a cow grazing in the desert and licking rocks. It's just a very, very strange thing to see. And the fact that all of this damage and all of the things that you've talked about occurs as a result of this fantasy uh, of grazing in the West to begin with, it's just a really sad tale. When you look at the long history of the landscape, uh, this, this very, very destructive, tiny, tiny period of human history and certainly a minuscule period of earth history all the lands and how long it took them to get to this place how long it took them to evolve the species on them and the and everything else and how in short order we have uh, destroyed so much with silly little ideas like well, let's graze cattle in the west in very arid and sensitive environments
1: right well that's you know maybe in 1880 it did make sense to try to use cows to harvest the abundance of plants in our arid landscape. The problem is nobody knew back then how long it would take for those plants to regenerate or the fact that these bunch grasses were, you know, actually old growth forests of grass and, you know, that they weren't just going to come back the next time it rained. Um, People didn't know back then how, slow these ecosystems grow and and a capacity of the ecosystem that's actually stored in the soil. this sort of biological richness that is the capacity of the ecosystem is from these really complex um, biological components in the soil that hold it all together and store water and support these really cool long-lived perennial species, you know, and so People didn't know on their first pass through because they they hadn't been in the arid west landscape, right? They've been in the Midwest and they've been on the East Coast and they've been in Europe. And in fact, a lot of the early livestock companies were European companies. They they uh, you know thought, hey, this is a great way to make money is we'll buy a herd of land uh, livestock. The land is free if you know, and we'll just fatten them up and sell them as beef. And maybe that and maybe that model works for a while, but the landscape doesn't have the capacity to sustain that forever. And when you see people today saying, well, you know, my I'm a fifth generation rancher, I'm a sixth generation rancher, and this is the way we've always done it. It's like, okay, but it was different back then. It was different back then. It was an ecosystem that had not been depleted and degraded to the point where the productivity was so greatly diminished. It was a bad idea at the time, but nobody understood how bad it was. Now we know how bad it is, and we're still pretending like this can work. And the only way that it works is through all of these subsidies and offsets and cheap grazing rates. And by sanitizing the landscape, you know, killing off the predators to protect the ranchers' bottom line, predators are a really important part of the ecosystem and they, when they're allowed to balance the dominant herbivores, they keep those ecosystems in check. The problem is we've most of our Western landscape, we have really destructive herbivores that the predators aren't allowed to eat because they belong to somebody that, you know, it's private livestock instead of public trust wildlife. And so, you know, there's these huge impacts that are just overlooked in trying to pretend that the status quo of the, you know, Western mythology is, is ever going to work out
0: here. It's crazy how dangerous something that's like the historical equivalent of a throwaway applause line um, that Trump used for his presidential campaign about Mexico pay for it and build the wall. It, it, It was never meant and never understood at the time even what it what it meant, what he was, it was just a throwaway line. I heard that it was Bannon that just said, hey, go try this. And it got such applause that all of a sudden, something that shouldn't have been is actually having a real world effect on us now. <laughs> and so that mistake in the 1800s where people thought that that grass would just grow back and it wasn't old growth and they didn't know anything about the biology or anything, was made a permanent blight on the land because it got started because somebody just thought they could make some money or in, in the president's case, they could win an election on it. Um, But it it really actually starts to manifest on the land, these crazy whims that people have. How do you stay positive in, in times like this? What's your go-to for uh, keeping your energy up and everything as you deal with these things that you wish could go away really quickly, but you know that we're in this for the long game.
1: Well, I try to believe that when people know better, they do better. And so to the extent that we can educate people and for for activists who um, do have a position of advocacy work with the agencies for them to really understand what they are perpetuating by overlooking livestock grazing impacts. Um, I think that that's, That's an important tool. Western Watersheds Project is a pretty small organization, but we have an outsized voice because we're one of the few groups that's really willing to tackle the impacts of of this issue. So I feel positive about the work that we're doing to change that perception in the West. We have had some really good successes with um, permanently retiring, Grazing allotments where there's legislation that allows for grazing allotments to be permanently closed, we've had um, we've had some success in in closing those to livestock grazing. They're still open for all the other uses, um, but and they're recovering because they don't have this ongoing annual degradation cycle happening to them. So that that keeps me positive. I think that. Um, you know, just probably like everybody, it's not, it's not easy these days. We're in a climate emergency. We're in an extinction crisis. Um, you know, you get out and you hike and you look for hawks and sitting on, you know, treetops and you look for things coming into bloom in the spring and you just, it's like, uh, nature continues to hope that it's going to be okay. So. I guess I do, too. Um, I just, I don't have a ton of faith. I think we have an opportunity. I think this crisis, global crisis, presents an opportunity for us to really mobilize and affect change. I think that's going to mean we're going to make people, uh, you know, comfortable people uncomfortable. Um, we'll be Comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable, I think, is the expression. I think Uh things are going to have to change radically. And I think that um, the current economic model that we have is not sustainable. And people will be, people are suffering because of that. And people will be suffering as we try to overturn that. But, you know, I think that's what needs to be done.
0: What's your favorite memory, or is it maybe there's something going on right now where an allotment was retired, a grazing allotment, or some sort of rewilding or recovery on purpose or accidentally that you've been witness to, and how the resiliency of nature that you, that you've been able to to see in a situation like that, if any? Yeah,
1: well, there's a great example with the Stampede. San Pedro Riparian National Conservation Area. That is uh, the first riparian national conservation area in the country. It's only one of two. That's down here in southeastern Arizona along the San Pedro River, and uh, it's BLM managed. It's about 55,000 acres. And when BLM acquired the land, it um, originally in the late 80s, it took. It said, "We're not going to graze." This place, um, we're going to make a decision about livestock grazing after the life of the current resource management plan. But we, this place is being protected for all of these, you know, cultural, archaeological, geological, paleontological resources, and unless you can prove. But in action is conserving, enhancing, or protecting the resources for which it's protected. It's not that SPRINCA is protected. It's not going to be allowed. SPRINCA is the acronym, San Pedro Riparian right National Conservation Area. So there, have, there hasn't been grazing there since the 80s, except on these four allotments. Those allotments in trespass livestock still have a really negative impact on the ecosystem at, at large. But the SPRINCA itself is beautiful. It is really an astounding cottonwood willow gallery forest. It's recovered beautifully since it came into public the public domain. There's been all kinds of studies on the recovery of the riparian system and the return of bird species to the recovered riparian system and um, to improved habitat. And that is just Um, a remarkable resource for us all to have a chance to study and see because there aren't a lot of long-term stories of things getting better, um, particularly around water in the West. And so this is one where, you know, the BLM in the 80s made the right decision. We're actually kind of bumped because we wanted them not to allow the grazing that does occur there to continue. Um, But this past fall they came out with a plan that allows that and lifts the moratorium on grazing in the rest of the NCA where they're now going to allow like targeted livestock grazing which is a totally unspecified unproven method for dealing with invasive species i guess it's really not clear why they why they want to allow cows back in but So that's a place that we're, you know, we have an ongoing fight with them, but it's also a place where I have a lot of hope because I've seen it. You know, we've seen the positive change over time in the absence of livestock and where you can show people that example, they get it, you know, and that gives me hope for other riparian systems to help keep Gauza, the next river and the next river. Because the San Pedro Conservation Area exists, that means that the lower San Pedro River between the conservation area and where it joins the Gila River has more potential for being restored as well, because you'd be having habitat continuity. Vegetation travels, plants and animals could travel through that corridor. So it's like both the source and the sink for the watershed. And it's really important to have those places that are essentially healthy as models, as something to aspire to, but also as something to, you know, hold on to for dear life because of how rare they are now.
0: Well, Greta, you and the rest of the gang at Western Watersheds Project, um, and everybody can go check them out at westernwatersheds.org, are doing really great work. As I look on your left sidebar of your site, there's so many neat things that I want to dig into, and they have great, nice titles like Recent Legal Victories. I love that, and I, I hope that list is even longer when I click on more. Greta, thank you so much for taking time to be on Rewilding Earth today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes go to rewilding.org/pod that's rewilding.org/p o d